Okay, great. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, very much looking forward to episode five of the Clockwork CIO. I have a, a tremendous guest on for episode five, Michael Steed, the founder and managing partner at Paladin Capital, uh, a cyber-focused VC firm where Mike provides management oversight of the firm's operations and investment activities. Uh, Mike is also responsible for the strategic direction of Paladin's current and future investment activities. Joining me from Washington, D.C., Mike, it's a, a real pleasure to have you join me today as my guest. Well, thank you very much, James. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm honored that you uh, think that there's enough here for your, for your audience to, uh, to be informed. But thank you very much for inviting me. Yep, thank you. No, it's a real, uh, honestly, it's uh, great to have you. And Mike, you've had a, an amazing career and I can't wait to get into this with you. Let's just kick off, Mike, by just getting a sense of what, how you would describe your, your, your leadership approach uh, at Paladin since, uh, since forming it um, back in 2001. So, so Paladin, we formed in 2001. James, um, after uh, uh, actually being a professional investor since 1985-86, and um, and what 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 I wanted to be able to do was to put together a firm with people that that were intensely more intelligent than I am <laughs> uh, to make good investments and to do something good for our country or to do something good for our people. Because I believe um, uh, that um, it's important that while we focus on making money for the, our investors, we also want to focus on what good can we do. So, for example, Paladin is an early stage investor. One of the nice things about being an early stage investor is you start with companies that have three, four employees and then end up with thousands of employees. So we take great, uh, um, great credit for creating a enormous number of jobs over the over the period of time that we've invested. Likewise, in the areas that we're investing now, we take uh, we take great measure in getting good returns for our investors, but we also are doing something good for our country and our allies. So we we wanted to have as the as the bedrock of what we put together at Paladin, saying to our investors, we're going to get you, we're going to do everything we can to get you a great return. Uh, and at the same time, do something good for our country, our friends, and our allies. And in that respect, then, uh, Mike, how do you how would you, how would you say that you lead the team there, and uh, the philosophy that that you're reinforcing? Would you say? Yeah. So the philosophy that we have is that everybody is at the table. Um, we don't have silos. Uh, we don't have a pyramid. Uh, but everybody is at the table so that everybody can learn from each other. Um, and, and so we put together uh, three worlds inside of Paladin. The first world that we put together was the world of national security. Think of it as global security. People who had background and experience in being able to deliver uh, uh, safe and, uh, safe and, uh, safety and security for their countries now who have come out of those positions now have joined Paladin. And we are driven then by the great information advantage that we have 
in being able to uh, uh, to be able to take the information that these folks bring to the table on a regular basis and making good decisions on themes and theses. The second world that we brought into Paladin was the world of specialized competence. You can't invest in these areas uh, and think that everyone who is actually an employee here at Paladin, um, you, 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 you can't expect to bring in as no, enough people to be able to take advantage of that specialized competence that you need in order to be able to look at the technologies, look at the engineering, look at the code, look at the markets, look at where you might be selling these particular products. So we have a whole group of folks that are associated with us. We call it the strategic advisory group. They're associated with us that bring that to the table for us. And then finally, you have to have people that know how to make money because that's our first and first and most important goal is to is to uh, is to invest on behalf of our investors. It's not our money. And we're very cognizant that it's not our money. Now, we invest our money alongside of it, but it's not our money. And and so so we have to be very good at at, at doing the, the nuts and bolts of being able to get good financial returns. So we have these three worlds inside of Paladin. That's worked very nicely. We put that together back in 2001, 2002. Um, and and, and now, uh, now that's working really well where we've got some top people that come together three, four times a year. And we create themes and theses, which drives our investing. And those themes and theses are looking at what are the solution sets that governments and the private sector need in order to protect our critical infrastructure. In other words, what, what do we focus on? Where does our investing go? Our investing focuses on the increasing vulnerabilities to our critical infrastructure, hmm. wanting to invest in product services and technologies that will make that critical infrastructure resilient and trusted at times of crisis or at times of rest. And with that as our investment theme, that allows us to be able to bring to the table a lot of people who can talk about the 16 verticals of critical infrastructures, can come to the table and talk about the increasing vulnerabilities, whether it's from uh, cyber attacks or AI or, 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 or the new uh, digital platforms that are coming online. And, and with that as a focus, and that was a focus we put together after 9-11, as a matter of fact. So it was, it was 9-11, we, we, we created... Uh, founded uh, the uh, Paladin back in uh, April of 2001. Three months later, the attacks against the United States took place. Uh, General Ken Minahan, who was re the retired uh, 14th director of the NSA, comes to comes to Paladin. We'd known him from a couple of deals we did. Came, came to Paladin and said, "Look, um, uh, this is just the beginning of uh, attacks against our critical infrastructure." Um, and there has to be an investment community response to it. And out of that came that investment thesis that I discussed earlier. And out of that came the necessity to bring together those three worlds in order to make great investments out of the information advantage. We have our power at the table in making investments is the information advantage we have. And you have to have that information advantage when you do early stage investing. So we're not just putting numbers in a black box and pushing a button and it comes out buy, sell, or do anything else with it. We have to have a leap of faith. That's what early stage investing is, is a leap of faith and making great, great decisions that are informed 
what I what I what I consider to be informed risk. So I love risk at Paladin. We love risk. All right. But we want to have informed risk to make sure that we have the best information at the table to make that leap of faith to say this is an this is potentially a good investment and then put money into it. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, so that, that that there's quite a few components there to how the Paladin team is 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 operating with uh, and with that strategic advisory group as well and um uh, we'll come into a little bit more about the backdrop to when you launched in 2001 later later into our discussion because it's it I'd be interested to understand how that informs your current investment okay. thinking but, but um just in terms of how you operate though Mike is there a leadership team is it primarily oh, you that, yes. is yes. it you yeah. That, that yeah so you, so 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 when you when you're 22 years in uh, you mm. know which is how old paladin is you have to have mechanisms that allow you to manage uh, a company that's got five offices we have five offices around the world uh, our main office is here in washington dc we have an office in new york office in uh in uh, silicon valley uh, we have an office in the uk and in luxembourg um and so so yes you have to have that we start with our executive committee um, our executive committee takes all decisions uh, um, uh, in how the firm is run. Um, they appoint the managing partner. I'm the managing partner, um, and uh, and that's and that's where it starts. Below that, then, is our deal flow uh, uh, committees, and then off of that, then everything that is that that is um, investment related goes directly to. The investment committee where decisions are taken there so you start with the executive committee that sets the tone sets the policies everything from from how you administer the firm to how you do your investments um, and then that drills down into the deal team so the deal the deal teams are headed by the chief the the chief investment officer um, he brings them together once a week um, we look at all deals that come in uh, and then the decisions are taken at that level as to do they want to go forward with any, uh, you know, with a with a with a particular deal, and what needs to be done at that point, um, and then it and then it and then it flows into the investment committees that, that then make the decisions on making investments, not making investments, or uh, um, um, exiting investments. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, that's that's clear. So, I'm just going to dial back now to your your chart your your early years your 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 where you grew up and and then we'll we'll, we'll chart a little bit through your career and then we'll come back to to, to again what what you're doing at paladin okay. so where, where 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 does where did it all begin for for, for mike so, steve so, where did you grow up so so i grew up in coronado california uh, most people are not aware of Coronado, California, but it's right next to San Diego, and it's one of the great the, the great spots in America. Um, my dad uh, got out of the Second World War. He was a dentist. Uh, my mom was a nurse. Uh, the last two years of the Second World War, they lived in Maui, um, and they wanted to. If the if if Hawaii had been a state, they might have stayed there, um, but. They wanted to get as close to Hawaii as they could, not going back to their hometown of Milwaukee. Uh, and so they, so my dad's ship let him off uh, 
in Coronado, and he established his dental practice there. So that's where I uh, uh, that that's where I grew up, um, uh, and uh, uh, try to get back there as often as I can because it's absolutely paradise. Um, uh, I would then go from uh, from uh, from Coronado up to uh, to Los Angeles to go to college, and I went to Loyola Marymount University. Um, this is a this is a university established many many years ago by the Jesuits, and joined by the Sisters of the Sacred Heart, um, and and I took my undergraduate degree there and my legal degree there uh, in Los Angeles, and and um, uh, and and you if you think of seven years of Jesuit education, um, that's that's uh, pretty remarkable. Um, and and the Jesuits uh, are very good at at pounding into you not only uh, not only doing well but doing well for others, and and as they say, they want to help others and seek God in all things, um, and uh, they they want to be sure that they're educating the whole person, um, and so out of that experience came my commitment to uh, um, to doing something good at the same time that you go out and make money. Um, and if you keep your eye on doing something good, that will help drive your life, I think, in the right spot. So that's what I, that's what I came out of that experience with. And so when we set up Paladin, um, even before Paladin, um, we, we, we always wanted to do private equity deals um, that had uh, um, that had a, a a rate of return that was great from a financial standpoint, and then a rate of return that was great for for the for the community you lived in, for the people that lived there, um, and and trying to do good for others by making great investments, um, and 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 so so those were that 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 period of time at at uh, Loyola Marymount. When I started, it was Loyola University. Halfway through, they merged with, with Mar Marymount. They became Loyola Marymount. Um, that, was, that was particularly formative because that, that, uh, that set that foundation that there was more to life than just making money, um, that, 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 there was the, that, that you had to be thinking about others and the things that you do. And so that has now permeated everything that we do here at Palette. I mean that that's very relevant today with with the the, the focus on on impact and 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 do, doing good uh, you know looking at the investment landscape as something that that is bigger than yeah. the IRR. I mean, what well, what is the social impact? What what yeah. is the well, you know, James yeah. James, what was what's interesting is that. For a long time, the United States government took the position you could not consider impact. You could not consider what I call collateral benefits to your investing. And it was during the Clinton administration that uh, in the Department of Labor, they changed that. They, they said that uh, professional uh, managers, professional investment managers, could consider the collateral benefits to the investments that they made. And what that meant was essentially is that if you had two investments in front of you that had the same re financial return characteristics, 
that you could make the defining decision on, well, but one is really going to going to going to substantially benefit uh, people in the society, substantially benefit the United States or our allies, as the case may be. Um, and you can make that decision based upon those collateral benefits. So that was done during the during the Clinton administration. And that was, I think, done by regulations. And it had to do with ERISA because that's that was ERISA driven. Um, and that that opened up the opportunity to make still make great investments. OK, because we are charged with taking other people's money and making great investments from that and getting good returns. We understand that that's our first and foremost responsibility. But at the same time, our investors actually talk to us about this and they say, listen, we want to see what else we're getting out of this. What other value is coming out of the investment, whether it's strategic value or whether it is community value? We still want you to get a great return, but we want to make sure that 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 the money is being put to work in the right way. Yeah. Absolutely. So that that those um those early years uh, and and studying at Loyola and um as you've as you've outlined just before you got to Loyola were, were there any what were you like in school were there any subjects that you excelled at Mike that that you you already had a, a sense of the path that that you wanted to go down or I just wonder what so 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 I always knew from an early age that I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I always felt that if I could be, be, be a good lawyer, I could do something good and I could, I could make, uh, make uh, money to put a roof over my head and some, some, some food on the table. Um, and so, so early on, I knew that I, I, that I wanted to go down the lawyer route. Um, that was very early in my, like 10 or 11 years old. Um, but as I got as I got further into thinking about that, I said to myself, well, getting the kind of training that you get when you are studying to be a lawyer, same thing in getting an MBA, by the way, the kind of training that takes you from a lot of set of facts and forces you to do critical thinking um, is, is a kind of training that would allow you to do multiple things, not just be a lawyer. So using the case method study of looking at facts, bringing in the law, and then making decisions off of that forced critical thinking. And in today's world, we don't have enough critical thinking, James, in my mind. Um, and and so, the, so, the, so the study of the law uh, did that for me. I would then, I would graduate uh, from Loyola Marymount, I think it was 74, uh, from from the law from the law school, um, and then I went into um, uh, into the Los Angeles City Attorney's Office uh, in, um, as a prosecutor, and I was a prosecutor for about 12, 18 months, um, and I learned a lot there because I got a chance to see the side of society that people who come from privileged sides of our society don't necessarily get a chance to see. And so um, I got to see the, the problems that our society had. I got to see some very bad guys. I put away some bad guys. Um, and, um, and I learned um, how to be a good, compassionate uh, lawyer uh, at the same time uh, understanding that we had, to we had to protect our society. 
After that, I went into the private practice of law uh, and and uh, got appointments from judges to uh, to uh, defend defendants that could not uh, qualify for the public defender. So I got appointments to do that. And that also brought me into another side of society that I would not have ever seen, which was, you know, the, the not only the people that did horrendous acts and who deserve to be in jail, um, but also to understand those parts of society that they came from um, and to say to ourselves, you know, we have to do what we can to make sure that we don't end up with a populate an overpopulation of criminals because we do the right things on the front end where they don't they don't go down the criminal route. So I had some 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 good uh, some good experiences during that period of time. Uh, I will say um, uh, that uh, um, uh, um, I was also at the same time uh, participating in in uh, politics. Um, I, I, I had a grandmother, God bless the woman, she lived to be 103 years old, wow. uh, who was a Roosevelt Democrat through and through. Um, and, and if the Jesuits pounded certain things into me, she pounded the, 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 the positive side of being involved in politics, not so much in Democratic Party versus Republican Party politics, uh, but you know, you know, you have a responsibility to do something good. Um, and she thought it was the Democrats that were doing that. She came out of the, as I said, a Roosevelt Democrat. She worked for the railroads out of Milwaukee. Um, and uh, until the day she died, she got her railway pension. I think it was $300 a month railway pension uh, up until the day she died. And, and she was very proud of the fact that she worked hard and very proud of the fact that she got her pension. Um, and I was very proud to, to have been at her, uh, uh, at her knee, listening to how she viewed these matters. And that drove me into the, into politics. Now I was never driven into politics to, to be elected to anything. That was not my goal. What my goal was really was to be involved in policy. Um, because, because what, what, politicians do is they make policy. If they're good politicians, they make consensus policy. And, um, and, and, and I started working inside of the, I actually, actually my first political event was walking precincts in 1964 for President Johnson uh, in Coronado. Now I was a little, I was a little boy and I got a lot of doors slammed in my face, <laughs> but, but uh, <coughs> I went from that to 1970, where I met a man, Chuck Manat, uh, who was the uh, who would eventually become the chairman of the Democratic Party in California. I did some work for him there. Um, a lot of some some work out of the out of the public relations side, out of the press office. Um, and and then in 1976, I was asked by him, along with uh, um, uh, Gray Davis and a guy named Steve Simmons, to write the platform for the Democratic Party of California that would be submitted to the National Platform Committee. So I was, I was, uh, I was in the policy side. That's where I wanted to be. Um, and I always saw the great utility that politics could be used to, uh, to help populations do better. 
Um, and if we can get the policy right, then then uh, then then large amounts of American uh, society would do would do what would do well. Um, so, and so at the same time, I'm doing the I'm doing the, the the work in the city attorney's office. I'm doing I'm doing the politics as well. Yeah, I was going to say. So in a way, your legal practice, your work with 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 individuals that perhaps were uh, on the, you know, they hadn't had a good start in life and, um, you know, were on the wrong side of the law. Um, that obviously informed you in, in a certain respect. And I, I, it might, is it fair to say that the, 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 road, the road to politics uh, and maybe those early experiences that you gained um, uh, having met with with Chuck and, uh, and 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 others, that then gave you maybe an insight into how you could apply your doing good, not just at the individual or community level, but at the actual nation wide level. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So 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 to carry that forward to your to your to your to your point, um, I would have been probably. Um, I would have done very well as a lawyer because I went out into private practice. I would have done very well as a lawyer. I would have been uh, fat and happy, um, <laughs> and 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 I would have had probably a decent life. Um, and what happened in 1980 uh, was uh, uh, President Carter lost his election uh, for for re-election to become president. And then Chuck Manat, who was a very good friend of mine, um, I mean, I mean, his roots in politics went down to the farms in Iowa. That's where he was raised. Right. And so 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 he had dirt under his fingernails, if you will, when it came to Democratic politics. And he was the consummate party man, not as we understand it today, where it's all contention and confrontation. But in the in the in the in the traditions of Tip O'Neill, where consensus building uh, was so terribly important um, uh, uh, to to how the two parties uh, worked together, and so uh, he decided after Jimmy Carter lost that he wanted to be national chairman of the Democratic Party, chairman of the DNC, and he asked me and another gentleman, Mickey Cantor, to help. Uh, run his campaign, and and uh, I had my own law firm along with a woman named Hillary Goldstone in Century City, um, two or three people in the firm, um, and I said I would I would help him, um, and Mickey helped him as well, and lo and behold, we go all around the country, we meet all the DMC members, and Chuck gets elected on the last day of February of 1981. Um, he then he then turns to Mickey and says, Mickey Canner, would you come and run the committee for me? And Mickey said, I got a family here in Los Angeles. I don't want to leave. Mickey was also at the time the law partner of Chuck's, and 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 so they so he stayed. And then Chuck turned to me and said, Would you come and help me run the Democratic National Committee? Um, you know, I like risk. Um. I, I would have been, I would, as I said, I would have been a great lawyer. I would have been bored to death. Yeah. Um, and so I made a decision uh, that that was, uh, you know, the the 
the, one of the more important decisions was to make the decision to leave the uh, security and the loveliness of Los Angeles and come to Washington, D.C., an area that I knew nothing about. I said to Chuck, look, I can't be the executive director out of the box because I don't know Washington. Let's find somebody to run it. So I was a special counsel for two years. And then and then and then I ran the the uh, the you know, then I was the executive director uh, during the last two years, national director of the last two years of the committee. But that experience was un, was an unbelievable decision. And I didn't realize how unbelievable it would be when I made the decision because it took me out of a comfort zone and it put me in an area uh, um, that uh, that that was entirely new. And that was running a large organization on a global scale um, and trying to elect people to office the right way. Uh, and if you remember, this was this was Ronald Reagan's first term as as a president. Uh, within the first several months of the time that he was president, he was the the. He was shot, um, uh, but but we adhered to the rules of Tip O'Neill. So when we first came to Washington, Tip O'Neill sat down with Manat and myself, I think Tony Coelho, some of the other people out of the house, and he said, we are going to respect the president. We are going to fight hard for our policy positions. And then at night, we're going to sit down and have a, a, a glass of scotch and a, and a beer and a and a stake with these people because they're real people and we're going to get to know them and out of that we're going to build consensus um and and when the president goes abroad we are not going to criticize him while he's abroad when the president is making national security policy we are not going to criticize him or her as the case may be and it was tip o'neill that said you know come in and fight hard for our candidates fight hard for our policies uh, but don't fight so hard that you can't sit down and have a beer and a steak, and or 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 in today's world a a, a beer and a salad. Yeah. So 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 that so 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 that was the training that Chuck and I got at the very beginning of coming into Washington. But what Washington did for me was to open up a world that I had that I would have never had exposure to. So I went from maybe knowing 40 people in in Los Angeles to knowing by the time we were done uh, in 1985 to knowing 6,000 people all over the globe. Um, and that was one hell of an education um, uh, oh, yeah. during that period of time. I, I'll get into that uh, just in a little bit more now, actually, Mike, because, I, it, yeah, that, that what you were just describing there where – you know, you can have that healthy debate with an opposing party, side, individual, whoever it may be. Uh, but it can be respectful. It can be an acknowledgement of one's differences of opinion. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. And you can, as you say, break bread in the evening. I think that's that's the that's that's really how it ought to be i i, I mean i don't want to deviate but just but but it, it, we are in a, such a different world today where that 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 approach to doing politics uh, perhaps is not quite as straightforward now oh it, it is it is it is not straight straightforward what happens 
I mean, there's a lot of issues. I could spend a lot of time and we could go on for five hours on yeah. this. But but the but but the the inability of people to listen to the other side, to actually sit down and listen to the other side is 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 remarkable that they don't do that. You know, they're unwilling, they, and I'm talking on both both sides now, I'm not talking Democrat or Republican, are unwilling to listen to the other side and to see where those places are where you can build a consensus. Um because they have different views doesn't mean they're bad. It doesn't mean that they're wrong. Okay. But they, what, what they're showing is that they, is that they want to sit down and build a consensus. If they want to do that, then they have a, that that's what politics is about finding a consensus that will drive good policy and nobody's 100% right. And nobody's 100% wrong, but we don't have that today. I can tell you that. Um, and, and, uh, but, but we, but we had it. We would regularly talk to the administration back during that period of time. We would talk to Ed Mace. We would talk to Deaver. We would talk to these folks. Um, uh, Frank Ferenkoff was the, was, the, was the RNC chairman. We would talk to him all the time. And we actually participated in an initiative of that administration to set up something called the National Endowment for Democracy. And this is an example of the kinds of things that you can do if you listen to the other side. So, so the Reagan administration wanted to remove from the CIA uh, the, the democracy building, the covert democracy building that they were doing around the world. They wanted to become overt. And they said the best way to do that is to deploy the Democrats, the Republicans, the Chamber of Commerce, essentially business, and then labor, organized labor. And so the, so the Reagan administration, through Ferenkoff and others, came to us at the DNC and said, listen, we think this is a good policy. Will you support it? And back in those days, uh, we didn't convene uh, advisors. We didn't convene uh, focus groups. We didn't take polls. The only question that we had at the time was, is this a matter of national security? And if the president said it was a matter of national security, guess what? You supported it. That's what you did. Mm -hmm. And so we supported the formation of the National Endowment for Democracy, uh, which, is, which does enormously great work on, a, on an overt basis through four institutes uh, to work with communities, to work with countries where they want to throw off left or right dictatorships in favor of their form of democracy. And that was formed in 1982-83 while we were at the Democratic National Committee. And that was kind of interesting, James, because that then thrust me and Chuck into a, into a global role. Right. Um, and it doesn't surprise you that there's over 7 million votes abroad. So that also helped those votes abroad. But that thrust us into a global role, and that made uh, that made us much more comfortable later in our lives about being global. So as I said earlier, Paladin is comfortably global. So mm. we have offices on a global scale, but we also work with governments, um, uh, uh, with the UK government, the French government, uh, the UAE government, Saudi, Singapore, all of these governments that we can work with because we feel very comfortable that Having them at the table is another way of getting good policies uh, that will allow for the right investment of our dollars into critical infrastructure. So 
um, that that shows you how that act made us made made me comfortable going on an international scale, um, and and that was a that was an important decision. And then taking Paladin down that road was a very important decision, because we would say to be good investors, to be good cyber investors or AI investors, you have to be global. Yeah, uh, they, you know, you know, cyber, cyber, as you know, James does not have anything to do with, with, uh, or is 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 not bounded by national borders, or by by certain economies. It's everywhere, and and uh, and and operates uh, as such. I, I mean, that was an amazing period that you lived through there, Mike, in the eighties, and and your your time with the DNC. Uh, I, this was Reagan's first term in, in in power. You know, he was he was. I think the Republicans had won by a landslide in that election. And I, I wonder, watching him, it, so much of public service is 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 predicated on on effective leadership. Yes. And and, and Ray, President Reagan was a. You know, he was a. A very very, high profile. Yep. Well-respected president. Um, what, 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 you, what did you learn observing him? And yeah. also, Mike, <clears throat> and yeah. also the fact that you had the opportunity to travel the world and meet all of these different global right. uh, world leaders. I mean, again, I, I just, just, just a last point on that before we, 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 we move on. So, so, so you raise a very good point. Let's never forget that Ronald Reagan started off as a Democrat. He started off as a Democrat. Um, um, uh, we we forgave him when he moved over to the Republican Party, <laughs> um, but he started off as a Democrat. And I think, basically, while he had a lot of policies that we opposed, I think basically he was a good man. Um, I, I think I think he 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 certainly had his own way of doing things. Uh, um, and he had his own policies. We opposed a lot of those policies, but he also had policies that we accepted. Um, and and uh, 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 you know, he made some strategic decisions for this country, such as spending, increasing the spending for defense at a magnitude that was that was not heretofore no uh, uh, accepted by the country. Um, that would eventually lead to the fall of the Berlin Wall, for example. Um, um, uh, he also uh, um, uh, um, was a consensus builder. He would get together with Tip O'Neill. Um, they would, they would, they would have a, they, a again to use my my my. They would, they would, they would have a drink and they would have a steak together and they would talk together, um, and they would find more common areas than I think they thought they had. Um, so, so um, I'll tell you one thing that I really learned from him um, that that didn't come to the fore until I was here in Washington is he made great decisions about people that he appointed to the cabinet and that he appointed to his staff. Because what what I was able to see up front and and personal was the fact that you know presidents can't do it themselves. It's too big. It's you know that's why you have cabinet officers. That's why you have staffs. Now you can pick on any one particular person. Oh well, gee, why did he appoint that guy? Why did he appoint that? I get that, but on the balance, 
he appointed well-meaning, well-thoughtful people. He had as his chief of staff, Jim Baker, for example. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a, there was a, you know, you know, again, we opposed a lot of the policies out there, but um, um, he was well-meaning and he wanted to, wanted to do what he thought was the right thing for the country. And he was incredibly smart. So one of the things to watch for presidents is who do they appoint to run their governments? And that's just as important as the president that you elect, right, is, is the people that are going to be running the government. That was one of the things that I learned upfront and personal. We saw it during the Kennedy years because Kennedy had, uh, 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 you know, brought in the best and the brightest to come into his government. Um, I think books have been written on this. Um, but I didn't really get that 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 upfront and personal education. So I came to Washington at, at, at the Democratic National Committee and saw the people that he appointed. Um, and and back in those days, if the president appointed, uh, you know, nominated somebody, the, the House and the Senate, excuse me, the Senate um, got to work and immediately got them into into their positions. There was no holding up this or that for other reasons. Um, and, and he had a full complement of very good people. Now, a lot of his policies, I didn't care for, but um, uh, they were well-meaning and they were trying to do the right thing. So, so uh, um, as much as uh, we opposed him, uh, we did a very good job, as a matter of fact, in 1982, um, electing Democratic governors during that period of time. Um, that was the midterm elections. We did very good in the midterm elections. We got swamped the 1984 presidential election, uh, uh, we lost 49 states in that, in that election. 48, um, wow. and, and, and so, um, uh, you know, you have to, you have to have a thick skin, uh, to be able to, 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 to take on a loss like that and figure out how do you recover from that? Uh, it took us, uh, we didn't elect another another Democrat as president until 1992. Uh, so the Republicans were in power in the White House from 1981 until 1991. And and I think in 1985, uh, Michael, around about that time, is that when you then obviously stayed, remained, and 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 have, and have until the the present day remained in Washington DC and I, that's when you then right. moved into uh working at the Union Labor Life Insurance Company right uh, that's and I believe that's where you then started to develop your investment um yes. skills and uh, what what was it like going from working with the DNC and and your legal background to then yeah. Work, you know, moving into another new organization where the focus was very much on, you know, developing a private equity program, and uh, that must have been a very different environment for you. Uh, it, how... was, it was. It yeah. was. What, what, what I realized um, during the during the late nineteen eighties was that uh, was was that there was a, there was change in the in the financial world go, taking taking place. And the change was uh, uh, in the in the incredible amount of capital that was being put into pension funds, both state and local pension funds, and into jointly trusteed union funds. 
billions of dollars was flowing into those during this period of time. And what was absolutely thoughtful, I think, during the early 80s was that a lot of that money was going to insurance companies and going into, into guaranteed investment contracts so they could lay off the liability that they had in the pensions against the income that was coming in. But now the money became too much. It couldn't all be put into, into guaranteed investment contracts. And so that was, you saw the, the rapid rise of investment management during that period of time. Yeah. Um, and I had the opportunity to, to learn during the late 1980s uh, from, uh, uh, to, to do investment in real estate and to do investments in private equity during that period of time. And then I was asked by the, by the leadership of the Union Labor Life Insurance Company, which was an organization founded by the unions of the AFL-CIO back in 1927 in New York to provide, at the time, uh, insurance uh, products, health insurance and life insurance products. That company would eventually move down here to Washington um, and, and be expanded into not only uh, uh, an incredible number of insurance products, but also into the investment world. And so I was asked to come in and to uh, be, the, be the head of investments for this company. Um, what, what I learned, the first thing that I learned there is that I didn't know a lot. So I brought in a lot of very top people to help me manage uh, the assets of the life company and this and the health company, but also to put together um, uh, uh, the management of of pension assets of the of the uh, of the unions. Um, and during that period of time is when I established and 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 built uh, the private equity business um, at. At, uh, at the Union Labor Life Insurance Company. And that's where I learned that I really enjoyed that early stage risk. You know, now, well, we did 78 deals from 1992 to the end, end of 99, first part of 2000. Um, and, and I enjoyed that risk, but I brought in experts to help me because, because, because I wanted to do it right. I wanted to have a disciplined process I wanted to bring in some. I wanted to bring in everybody. Everybody that I brought in was was much more knowledgeable than I was. We brought in, for example, Hamilton Lane uh, came in and worked with us for over three, four years in order to have a, a disciplined, focused process in making good investments, reporting valuations and mm -hmm. rates of return, every aspect of it. So one of the things that I learned, and that's really important, I think, in today's world, is is get the best people to come in and help you. Uh, get people that are smarter than you. If you are uh, uh, troubled by having people that are smarter than you, then don't get in this business. Uh, get a, you know, go do something else. Go write a book or something. But, but, but if you're in this business, you know, bring the best and the brightest to the table to help you uh, uh, do it. And so we put together a process and procedure uh, inside of the Union Labor Life Insurance Company that allowed us to make a lot of money for our investors, and then, and then, and then use that same processes and procedures when we set up Paladin in April of uh, 2001. Yeah, I think that point about surrounding yourself with the best people, I, I, I think many examples that we could refer to of, of great business leaders and stewards of, 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 of industry who have really excelled 
primarily because they've they've had the the capacity to see the best in people and hire the best people and get just surround themselves with the best people to do what they do best i mean yeah. that is the trick to well it's one of the tricks to being an effective leader isn't it it's it's understand what understand what you bring to the table but but importantly you know make sure the rest of those around the table are, are, are really pushing the the company the enterprise in in the the right direction james that's that, that if you follow it through that's the same thing in politics right? I, right I said ronald reagan got some great people president kennedy got some great people to run their governments vastly smarter than they were and 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 it's the same thing at paladin you know we we wanted to have we you cannot allow yourself to be intimidated by having men and women who are smarter than you at the table to work on making great investments and creating great value for the country. And if you're intimidated by it, go do something else. I mean, I mean, that's, you know, you know, and, 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 uh, 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 and that allows you to build a great consensus to make good investments or to make good decisions by having the best people back, uh, you know, there. Um, and so it was, uh, you know, it was just a continuation of what I learned over time when we when we put together Paladin, and it it, it, it never goes in a straight line, by the way, because nah. sometimes sometimes you make you don't make good choices in hiring people, and you then have to be be cognizant of moving those people on, or uh, and then and then do that in the right way so you're not embarrassing them and they find another opportunity. Uh, but um, uh, you know, we we're not a nine to five office here. We don't watch the clock. We don't say to people, you got to be in at nine and go and leave at five. We want people here who are passionate. You know, if they're not passionate about it, I sit here and talk to people we hire all the time. And I say, if you're not passionate about this, there's a hundred other jobs down the road. Okay. But if you're passionate about it, then I know whether you're here in the office or not in the office, you're doing something that furthers the mission of Paladin. And so, so, so what I look for in people is not only that they're intensely more intelligent than I am, but that they're passionate about what they want to do. And, and you, that can't, is, that, you can't hide that, by the way. I know, I know. And, and, and so we say to folks, you know, I, I say up front, if you're not, if this is a, if this is a stopping place to put Paladin on your resume, or if this is a stopping place while you figure out what you really want to do, then by all means go somewhere else, you know, and, 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 but if you really like risk, and I can, you know, pretty pretty much now know whether somebody likes risk or not. <laughs> if you really like intelligent risk, you know, and you really are passionate about what you want to do, then you have a place, you have a home here. The result is is that people stay here, um, and that's and that's a good thing because that's that's good for our investors because there's consistency and stability that you don't always see in many firms. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's fascinating to hear you uh, share these insights, Mike. It's um, it's 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 you've lived through. Uh, I mean, decades of incredible change. It's. Uh, let me just ask you, Mike. Then, when you launched Paladin in April of two thousand and one, just before the 
atrocities uh, of September 11th. What was it like going through that experience in the, so shortly after launching? And, and how, how did that perhaps inform the way that you navigated other challenging periods yeah. like the GFC yeah. and also even the lockdown where we're talking about, yeah. you know, motivating and, and, and making sure the team are on the right path. But I, I just, I, well, I just, so, I, so, yeah. So, so the bedrock of making that kind of a decision is having a good family. Um, uh, um, I have a, uh, I have a, a wife, uh, who is a, who is a, who's truly a partner. Um, um, and she is, she, she has put up with an enormous amount. Uh, but she also, um, has her finger on the pulse of the family, right? And you don't make those kinds of moves unless it's a family decision. So first and foremost, you've got to go back to your roots, sit down and say, is this good for the family? Um, and so that decision was made over time in good discussions with Carol, my wife, um, and, uh, um, uh, and, then, and then we had three boys. Now the boys, boys were not of, a, not of an age that, uh, that you would sit down and go through all the various pieces with, but um, in your family life, there's nothing more important than your children. Um, and, and, the, and for them, there's nothing more important than what is that education that they have. So we would spend a lot of time on all of that. Getting that right allows you to then take a risk, if you will. Leave where you are, where you're very comfortable, and take a risk in setting up a firm. And so that's where it started. It started with the family, um, and it started with, with uh, also some very good people who came over from the Union Labor Life Insurance Company with me, Mark Maloney, uh, uh, um, uh, Hal Brown, uh, 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 several other folks, uh, Robin Madison, uh, Patty Rainier, they, 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 they also came over so that there was a stability of, uh, of purpose, um, and a group that, uh, that was really good. I mean, uh, Mark is, is fantastic at, at, uh, marketing and thinking about how you turn, uh, investment products into things that, uh, the pension funds would would find uh, would find attractive. So 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 that was the that was the genesis of it. Um, and and so anytime you make a major decision like that, um, you got to go back to family and you got to start there. And then you got to look at partners. And then you and then and then and then you have to be able to be flexible. Remember. In April of 2001, we did not we we have not yet experienced the horrendous attacks of September of 2001, um, and and it was after that that we then got you know the General Minahan uh, came in and and we put together uh, the investment thesis that we that still is in place today. Now it has evolved over that period of time. When we first put it into place, it was largely focused on physical security. Cyber was not yet uh, something that people thought was necessary. They thought back in 2001, 2002, that cyber were technology, nice, nice technologies, but you didn't need them. It would 
that as things evolved in 2007, 2008, um, suddenly uh, when cyber went from just the bad guys stealing stuff to now the bad guys wanting to disrupt and destroy, that then changed the whole dynamic. So the key to a firm like Paladin and any other firm is, is that as markets evolve, you have to evolve. And so now we went away from that kind of physical security alone into this cybersecurity, um, where now these were technologies of need. Um, you saw the IT departments being moved aside and you saw the rise of the CISO. Uh, you saw the rise of cyber budgets and you saw the, 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 uh, uh, the, the C-suites now not just leaving it to the IT departments or the CISOs, but decision-making went up to the C-suites. Mm. But it still was voluntary. Nothing was mandatory at the time. Um, and now we're in the third evolution of cyber, if you will, which is uh, that, that uh, uh, since it's so critical now to our critical infrastructure, to our policies um, and our allies' policy, where now you see mandatory requirements coming on. But you have to be willing, once you set up your firm, to be fleet of foot and to be flexible and to evolve. Um, and that's what we did. Uh, still have the same focus on critical infrastructure. We just expanded it from a, from, a, from a market of 200 billion to a market of 4 trillion. And that's how we look at it today. Wow. 4 trillion. Yes. Wow. Yes. That's, uh, that, is, that is substantial. And I think that is only likely to get bigger as we continue to embrace this new paradigm of uh, AI that uh, is fundamentally changing the way that we think about the way we live. Um, I'm going to come back. To, I, I'm in the interest of time, Mike. I've got one question okay, go to, to bring to you before I then conclude, which ties in with the AI point. But uh, okay. if I could just, um, I think it's important to. Uh, reinforce where we are today you've just outlined the the, the size of the market and, and that just underlines the threat landscape that frankly exists today uh, I, for our audience i i believe that you recently uh visited uh krakow in in poland yeah. Yeah. um you were there uh where the national democratic institute for international affairs um, had a board meeting, um, and now coincidentally, that 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 coincided uh, with President John F. Kennedy's famous uh, "Ich bin ein Berliner" speech, yes. uh, which was given in June of uh, 1963. Uh, could you just uh, yeah. give a little outline as to how you found that trip recently, Mike, yeah. and the, the the poignancy to you know, that, that anniversary of, of JFK? Well, I, I, I could go on for a long time on this, but let me, let me see if I can't focus it. Um, I think it's terribly important for people to get out and to go and to go into these countries and to get to know the people in those countries. Uh, we don't know, uh, you know, we think because we grew up in the United States that the only way is the United States way, and that's not the right way to think of it. Um, um, I will tell you that uh, uh, four years ago, 
uh, uh, our family went to Israel, spent 10 days in Israel, not just in and out, but spent 10 days in Israel. And coming out of that experience, I learned more about, about Israel and now understand the horrific things that are going on there by, by Hamas and why the Israelis need to do what they are going to do there. And likewise, in going into Poland, we sat down in Poland, we met with the ambassador there, Ambassador Brzezinski, we met with the mayors there, we saw a society that had opened themselves up to the Ukrainians who were coming across because of the Russian, uh, um, because of the Russian uh, war. And, and we got to see firsthand how that society was dealing with the crisis, which was just across their border. And one of the things that was incredible was listening to these mayor. They fought, we had we had a session with five mayors of cities in uh, Poland, and all of them said that they had taken in. I think the number was 1.2 million uh, families, people that had come in. Uh, many, many had transited outside of Poland once they got into Poland, but had come in and that they had been taken into the homes. Think about this. A million, 200,000 people had been taken into the homes of the people in Poland um, and had been assimilated and integrated into their society. Um, they, they, they said that a lot of those people had work because they needed, they needed work inside of Poland. And we saw a society there that just opened themselves up uh, to another society that 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 was being uh, uh, ravaged by uh, 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 by dictators, um, and and that that strengthened the resolve that one has to go forward. Likewise, um, I I have uh, the honor to be on the uh, JFK Library Board. Um, and uh, had the opportunity to travel from Poland to Berlin uh, to celebrate the President Kennedy's uh, uh, 60th anniversary of his famous speech. Um, it was incredibly moving to see the numbers of people in Berlin that joined in the various activities that took place. Um, young people uh, that 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 wanted to be guided by the by the by the vision by the words by the images of president kennedy as they take a look at their society today it was terribly important to celebrate that anniversary um, and i was i was pleasantly surprised to see the the participation not only not only by the by the by the embassy, the ambassador there did one heck of a job in in providing a platform for uh, for the for the for the for the sixtieth anniversary, but also uh, to provide uh, uh, the society provided uh, for speeches. Uh, we were able to stand where Kennedy stood. Uh, we were able to to go into Willie Brandt's. Uh, he was the mayor at the time of, of, of Berlin. We were able to go into his offices uh, and and to and to hear the stories uh, from the people who were actually there at the time, um, and and the ability of the United States in both instances, whether it was Poland or Germany, the ability of the United States to bring its values to the table 
to work on those values on behalf of the people in those countries um, and be enhanced by ourselves to enhance our own society by what we learn by going in and seeing um, how these people view not only democracy, but view their societies. Terribly, terribly important. Um, and I, and I, I strongly recommend that people go into these, go, you know, travel abroad, uh, get an opportunity to learn the culture, not only enjoy the, the places where you vacation, but, but, but take the time uh, to, to learn uh, um, uh, the culture of what's going on. We just got back. My wife and I just got back from Rome, or from Italy. We went to three or four locations. But when we're in Rome, of course, you do all the things you do when you're in Rome. But one of the one of the tours we took uh, was the was a tour of the Jewish ghetto um, in Rome, um, and I learned an enormous amount about about uh, uh, um, the 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 Jewish people that came into uh, Rome, which was literally a century or two before Christ, um, and 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 what had, what had happened in that ghetto, and how they were treated, and we went to we went to two or three sites where there were there were there were confrontations, um, and so when I say you know you should travel and go to these places, certainly go and certainly enjoy. The tourist places, but also go outside of it and get to learn about these other societies. It will enhance you and help your decision making and help your thinking on things beyond what you get in school and 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 elsewhere. So, I highly recommend yeah. that uh, part of what you do as as a as a leader is you really get to know what's going on. Yeah, and don't and don't just just don't just rely on what's on television or 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 in the newspapers. Uh, yeah, very 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 interesting, and it goes back to what we were saying earlier about understanding in the political sphere. You know, understanding and finding consensus with your opposition, and 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 and, and you know, equally visiting different parts of the world and understanding different cultures and, and finding commonalities as well. again it's another extension of how you widen your perception of what it means yeah. to be a a good leader or a good person really james the other the, the other side of that is also recognizing when there's evil and i mean real evil um as you see today in the middle east as you see today in as as to what Hamas has done uh, to the Jewish people, and and so that helps you become informed to understand the difference between terrorism and state-sponsored activities. Um, and it's it, again, you you can you have to inform yourself, but as you look at what's going on today in the Middle East, you look at what's going on today uh, and the horrendous. Uh, attacks by Hamas uh, against the Jewish people, you realize then that leadership requires that you support Israel. I use this as an as a, as a example that's in front of us today, that you support Israel and what they need to do to protect their people. So it, 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 it's not all 
uh, roses, it's guns and roses. And, and, and you have to, you have to be balanced. You have to be thoughtful. And then you have to be absolutely absolute in confronting terrorism. Just as a final word, Mike, I think it would be uh, prudent uh, of me to at least just get a final thought from you as Paladin continues to grow and uh, pursue it, uh, its objective of uh, being comfortably global, which I think is a very nice way of yeah, describing yeah, what you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just as a final word um, or thought, how do you see the AI paradigm from a yeah. leadership perspective? Do you, do you see that changing the way that tomorrow's, when I mean tomorrow in coming years, decades, future CIOs, future leaders, will it change yeah. the way that, that, that we operate, do you think? I just wonder what your last thoughts are on so, that. So, so James, um, in a person's lifetime, you don't see very many things that are life-changing. Now, people will say AI is transformative. I would say no. That's too, that's too soft a word. Mm. What has happened here with AI is life-changing. And, and it will change every aspect of our lives over the period of our lives. Uh, some of it will be immediate. Some of it will be, be intermediate. Some of it will be long-term. Um, uh, we all know that AI has been around for 30 years, but largely has been used by, by, uh, by labs and companies uh, um, and has not been available to the people. What's happened here in the last eight weeks, you know, 12 weeks, whatever this period of time is, is suddenly AI is now available to billions of people. Mm -hmm. Okay. And those billions of people don't know uh, what it does or what it doesn't do. They say, well, gee, I can go on and I can get an answer to a question and, or I can get a paper written or I can get all these kinds of things. But what they don't know is where does the data go? Mm. What they don't know is what are the false, you know, the, 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 the national security things that are, that, are, that are created. Misinformation, disinformation, deep fakes. Mm. Those are national security concerns that have, that have been enhanced by AI. So there's good things with AI. And then there's extraordinarily bad things. And so, so, so we're working, for example, on the detection of of, uh, of of malicious AI, um, uh, the so so it is it is tremendously life changing for our society. Um, it has incredible positives for our society, but now that it's available to billions of people, I can tell you there's one or two of those billions of people that are bad guys, mm -hmm. and they're going to attempt to use this to take down our societies, to take down our critical infrastructure. And so we must be vigilant in the investing that we do. So, so, so it's, it's, it, it's, it's got so many different aspects to it. If you, if you sit back and you think about it, you say, well, I really don't know what AI is. Okay, I get that. But what you have to focus on is the speed at which AI changes. Yeah. Okay, because you might decide that AI today is X, but 
in, in a matter of minutes, it now has become Y because of the speed at which it changes. Yeah. The government is trying to uh, grapple with how to regulate AI. Um, what we want to make sure, and what we're working with with the with the with the White House, uh, the the House, the Senate, and the governors, we're 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 we're, we're briefing all four of these from our standpoint. Uh, is is what is the what 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 is the responsible way in which to regulate AI um, uh, so that so that you have first and foremost safety and security in mind when deploying it when creating well, well first of all when when creating it and then with and then in deploying it um, uh, we 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 uh, at Pilot, and we've had three or four investments in the in the area that we did with AI because we saw this as a problem back in 2019, 2020. James, it is absolutely life changing. Yeah, and I, uh, and, and that 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 is uh, that is uh, it, it's both exciting and then it's oh my god. Moment. <laughs> yeah, no, completely, and I, I think it will require a global approach as much as what maybe is happening yes. at the nation national level um Absolutely. it's only as good as the global uh response to how you think about the ethical well, it's like and, cyber it's like cyber yes, it, it, yeah. it knows no boundaries it doesn't exactly. have geographical boundaries financial boundaries policy boundaries it has no boundaries but you have to have it on a global basis now the yeah. the biden administration recognizes this they they appointed nate fick uh, as the ambassador, the, the global ambassador for for uh, for cyber activities, and so he's trying to work on these kinds of policies on a national basis. Um, and you've got you've got people in the White House that really understand the necessity to be global mm. in coming up with the solution sets, but they have to work on it quickly yeah. because it's it's always changing. <laughs> and Absolutely. and so we're working with them. Uh, to bring our, our our expertise to the table to help them think about uh, good policy. So we would say to you, uh, uh, a good policy must have uh, inno- must have the innovators and the investors at the table. Uh, failure to do that means you have bad policy, at least in these areas, cyber and AI being the two areas. Yeah, yeah. Mike, it's been... An absolute pleasure speaking with you today. You've been very, you. very, very gracious with your time. <clears throat> Fascinating career, and I've really, really enjoyed listening to you. Uh, great insights on really how the world has changed and how you've evolved as a leader, and and the, the great work you're doing at Paladin. It's uh, it just remains for me to wish you all the best for the rest of the year, Mike. And um, thank you. It's been a real pleasure having you on my show as my guest and thank you so much for well, that thank you thank you thank you very much for inviting me and and uh uh and and uh i'm i'm happy to come back as developments uh, uh warrant so thank you very much for having me on thank you